Hello, and welcome to this FRDH podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. This episode is mostly about Ireland, and, you know, Irish stories go here and there, so I'm asking your indulgence. Listen through to the end, and if you do make it through, go to the website www.goldfarbpod.com and make a donation. I have other stories to tell and people to talk to, and a donation will help me to do it. Anyway. In the 1990s, when I worked for NPR, I covered a lot of stories, but my main beat was Northern Ireland. I reported on the final five years of the Troubles, the conflict resolution stage of the low-grade civil war that had roiled the province since the late 60s. It was that rarity for a journalist, a story with a happy ending, but it also had a violent, discordant coda, whose 20th anniversary is this week, the OMA bombing. I might have let that anniversary go by. It traumatized me a bit. But thanks to Brexit, the mistake that keeps on giving, Northern Ireland, the Good Friday Agreement, is back in the news, and the story of those years I was on the beat is worth telling again. The Northern Ireland conflict, by the time I got to know it, was merely smoldering. The worst was over. You could look directly into the society, like a forensic specialist in fires looking through a still-smoking building for signs of arson, and trace out the causes of the conflagration and the fuel that had sustained it. The root cause was the legal discrimination on which Northern Ireland had been founded in 1921, when the island of Ireland was partitioned by Britain. Ulster, the province in the northeast of the island, remained British. Although Ireland is overwhelmingly Catholic, Ulster was majority Protestant, and those folk had no desire to live as a minority in a Catholic Ireland. The Ulster Protestant ethos was a religious nationalism, about three centuries out of date, summarized in the misquoted words of Northern Ireland's first Prime Minister, James Craig, as a Protestant state for a Protestant people. Legalized discrimination against Catholics was part of Northern Ireland's foundation. The conflict began in the fateful year 1968, when the Catholic minority began to emulate the tactics of African Americans in the American South by marching for their civil rights, and also for a united Ireland. They were met by loud and obnoxious resistance by some sections of the Protestant majority. But where the federal government in the U.S. responded to protests by passing legislation to guarantee black civil rights and providing protection to the marchers and those integrating schools and universities, successive British governments ignored or intervened on behalf of the Protestant majority. Things got violent. The IRA was reborn, or not reborn, re-stimulated. Protestant paramilitarism answered it, and within five years, the whole of the province was under guard by the British military. A long, sad story of needless death, terrorism in the North, in Britain and the Republic of Ireland, intracommunal division, and mass imprisonment unfolded over the next 20 years. By the time I made my first visit to Northern Ireland, the whole conflict was jellied in aspic. People had come to accept what most of us would think unacceptable. It was just the way their world was. I traveled to Belfast just before Easter 1993, a raw and miserable time of year. In Belfast, I sat in the office of the largest Protestant party at the time, the Ulster Unionists, talking to the city's mayor, Reg Empey, a friendly man capable of rationalizing in the most unbigoted way the bigotry at the core of the conflict. 
As we spoke, I looked out the window and watched a British Army patrol in combat fatigues go by, rifles at the ready, sighting along the rooftops and the alleyways as if it was a war zone. It was really weird. The city was not obviously dangerous. I asked Empey about being under Army protection. He said, We are not a normal place. No, indeed not. After a few days in Belfast, I got on the train and went down to Dublin. The border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland was very hard and heavily militarized, but the train passed through it easily enough. As I tell you this, I am dredging up a sense memory, the feeling of how bizarre this seemed to me. Remember that Northern Ireland was part of the United Kingdom, the country where I was living. The Republic of Ireland was the UK's ally within the European Union. Both were modern, peaceful states with advanced economies. Well, Britain's was more advanced at that point. And yet, somehow, the UK had contrived to have one of its constituent parts remain in a state of low-grade conflict that required the presence of around 18,000 full-time soldiers to keep the peace among 1.6 million people and patrol a border that, three years after the collapse of the Berlin Wall, was probably the most fortified barrier in all of Western Europe. A border not with an enemy, but with a close ally inside the EU. The political failure the Irish border represented was stupendous and had a long history. Back in the late 19th century, when the whole of the island of Ireland was under a British suzerainty that stretched back centuries, agitation for Irish home rule and then independence was constant. To prevent independence, the Protestants, or Unionists, willingly made themselves allies, or more accurately, pawns of the Conservative Party in the hopes of maintaining their union with Britain. The Conservatives, over the following century, happily played the orange card to maintain power in Britain. William of Orange, Protestant, had defeated Catholic rebels in the 17th century in Ireland. Those who forget the past are condemned to repeat it, but those who dwell on the past too much repeat it also. Anyway, I digress. Change was coming in 1993, the year I started covering this story. Finally. In Dublin, I met with the new foreign minister, Dick Spring. He was young-ish. We were born in the same year. And by Irish standards, he represented a new generation. New thinking, anyway. He had publicly made it his business to get involved in trying to resolve the mess on the northern side of the border. His overview was simple. The Catholic minority in the north, called nationalists or republicans, wanted to eliminate the border and have united Ireland. The Protestants, the unionist majority, would violently resist that and be backed up by the British government. The way around the problem was to make the border meaningless, in Spring's view, and to do that he would have to negotiate with Ulster's Protestant politicians. Having just met some of them, I was a bit skeptical about whether that could work. I asked if there was anyone up there he thought he could negotiate with. Spring reached across and put his hand over my microphone. No, he said. But in essence, he had stated the secret to resolving the conflict. Make the border meaningless. And for the next five years, that is what the political process was about. It was a tortured process, and the body count would continue to rise. Six months later, I was back in the north to report on the aftermath of an IRA bombing that went awry. Above a fish and chip shop on the Shankle Road, the leaders of a particularly vicious Protestant paramilitary group, the Ulster Defense Association, were having a meeting. 
an IRA man went on a bombing mission to kill them en masse. The bomb went off early, killing the IRA guy, and as it was Saturday and the Shankle, a main shopping drag, was full of women and children out shopping and stopping into the fish shop for a Saturday treat, it killed women and children as well. Nine people in all. I flew over the next day and reported on the funerals and other stuff beside. I felt the deep paranoia on both sides, watched as rumors swept crowds and turned them into mobs. There were inevitable revenge attacks, and it seemed like things were going to get really grim. But a few weeks later, it was revealed that the British government and Irish government were in fact talking to each other, had been for a while, about a political process to make the border meaningless. I could make a three-hour-long podcast about the next five years, but you would get bored and my voice would give out. But I need to tell you a couple of things. A fair amount of the personal contact between the then Prime Ministers of Britain and Ireland, John Major and Albert Reynolds, took place in sidebar meetings at European Union summits. The EU is not just about trading and a single currency. Remember that. Second, this was not an easy conversation, especially for Major. The IRA had killed a close colleague, Ian Gao, a particularly gruesome death, a car bomb that went off in the driveway of his home. He bled out in front of his wife and children. Major was only able to push for a settlement so far, but then stood back. It wasn't until Tony Blair led the Labour Party to a landslide victory in May 1997 and became Prime Minister that the work that led a year later to the Good Friday Agreement could be resumed. In the end, the Good Friday Agreement's main achievement was to make what Dick Spring spoke of five Easters previously possible. It made the border meaningless, although Spring was long out of office by the time this happened. The agreement did this by enshrining the principle of consent. So long as the Protestant majority in the North wanted to remain in the United Kingdom, that would be the case. But if opinion changed and a majority in the North wished to reunite with the Republic of Ireland, the UK government would not stand in the way. The first step to making the border meaningless was that the Good Friday Agreement needed to be ratified by the people of Northern Ireland at the same time the people in the Republic agreed to a constitutional amendment explicitly renouncing claims to the territory north of the border. Everything would be by popular consent, and the future was not foreclosed. Referendums were held on the same day, north and south of the border. The Good Friday Agreement and the Constitutional Amendment were overwhelmingly ratified by the people. Happy ending. Except, this being Ireland, there needed to be some tragedy associated with it. Three months after the celebrations, in the provincial town of Oma, a dissident group of IRA men set off a massive car bomb. Like the Shankle Road bomb, it went off on a Saturday in the main shopping street, but this time it was intentional. The victims were precisely who the bombers expected them to be, families out shopping. Twenty-nine people, Catholics and Protestants, were killed. I was driving my own family around London that day. Back then I obsessively listened to the news because if something happened, I had to drop everything and get to the office and get to work. I heard about the bomb on the five o'clock bulletin, pulled up to the first red phone booth I saw, no mobile phones back then, called a toll-free number to NPR in Washington. The weekend editor, David Sweeney, had already booked me a seat on the first flight out in the morning. I spent the next three days filing and filing, 
recording relatives waiting for the bad news at the county hospital, baffled officials trying to explain the inexplicable, and sneaking out of the press enclosure in a farmyard to record the funeral of Avril Monaghan at St. McCartan's Church in the beautiful County Tyrone countryside. I had long since learned how to record discreetly, and the people at the funeral didn't object to my presence. Avril Monaghan was eight months pregnant with twins. She died in the blast along with her year-old daughter, Mora. She'd been out shopping for school uniforms for her older children. Inside the church, the older ones sat with their father. Looking through the church door, I could see them. At one point, in a lull in the service, there was a child's howl of pain, brief and soul-rending. When the Mass ended and we were invited to give each other a sign of peace by shaking hands, I tucked my microphone away and reached out to the mourners around me. There's a time to put aside your job as reporter and be a human being. And when Avril Monaghan's husband and two surviving children came out of St. McCartan's and followed the coffins to the graveyard, something inside of me broke, although I didn't realize it at the time. Since that funeral, I have never been back to the North. Been to Dublin a couple of times, but never to Northern Ireland. And that's odd, because over five years I came to like the place. It's beautiful. The people are great. The crack. I learned one of the most important lessons of my life there. In conflict resolution, peace never equals justice. You can have one or the other. People prefer peace so most war crimes will go unpunished. Over the years, there have been arrests and trials, but no one has ever been convicted of the OMA bombing. Anyway, the atrocity did not have the bomber's desired effect. It did not start a new cycle of violence. It actually solidified the Good Friday Agreement, reminding people of what the alternative was. The border was demilitarized trade flowed. The boundary between the Republic and the province of Northern Ireland remained on maps, but psychologically came to have little meaning. Politics in Northern Ireland is ornery, but by contemporary American standards, it's a model of bipartisanship. Then the Brexit vote happened. Nobody who campaigned for Britain to leave the EU gave much thought to what would happen on the island of Ireland. As a member of the European Union, the UK is part of a free trading area. Goods pass freely from one member state to another. When the UK leaves the EU, that ends. The Irish border becomes a point of entry to a non-EU state. Customs posts will have to be erected. The barrier on a map, which people on the island of Ireland had managed to render unimportant, will be physically reimposed. Most of the Brexiteers are conservative MPs who were lukewarm about the Good Friday Agreement to begin with, and Theresa May's government is propped up by the most hard line of the Unionist parties, the Democratic Unionists. The orange card is still being played by conservatives. There's more to say about this, much more, and in future podcasts, as Brexit talks get to crunch time, I will look at this issue again. But it's bitterly ironic on this painful anniversary to think that the work that culminated 20 years ago is being undermined by the second biggest voting mistake any democratic society has made in this century. The biggest mistake? Do I have to tell you? And that's all for this FRTH podcast. Lots more to listen to at the website, www.goldfarbpod.com. Check it out, and please, make a donation. Thanks.